Please come and uh, join me at Acts chapter 8 this morning. And as we move into what is a, a new section, if you will, in the book of Acts, I want to give you just a real quick, big picture overview, reminder of what it is that we're studying. As you study the Bible, you start in Genesis, you go to Revelation. You have the, the progressive unfolding of the plan of God. He is the king of the universe. He is the creator of everything. He is the judge of everything. It's one marvelous plan from beginning to end. It's one author using 40 human authors to, to, to tell one story. And, and it's about the king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who uh, will come and reign in glory on the, on the throne of David and then eventually take us to the new heavens and the new earth. And it's one continuous unbroken story from beginning to end. But along the way, there are some significant points of discontinuity within that massive, wonderful continuity. Things change before and after the fall. That's a big deal. Before and after the flood. That's a big deal. Before and after the Tower of Babel. That's a big deal. Before and after the, uh, the law. That's a big deal. Before and after Christ. That's the biggest of all. Before and after the rapture. Before and after the second coming. And up to the new heavens and the new earth. There are those points of change. And in the book of Acts, we're dealing with one of those points of change in the continuity of the unfolding of the plan of God. But the point of change is not a point in time. It doesn't, it doesn't just, in, in human reality, it doesn't just happen in an instant. Now, we know that Jesus rendered the old covenant obsolete when he lifted that cup at the Passover and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He announced the arrival of the new covenant. But then, it wasn't until the next day when he was on the cross and he said it is finished and, that, and, the, and the temple uh, curtain into the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Now access to God is granted. But it wasn't really until he uh, fulfilled the promise, I will send my spirit, that he began to build this new thing called the church. And we have in this case a transition time. Jesus rendered the old covenant obsolete. So from that night in the upper room until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there was about a, it was almost 40 years of transition in which the old covenant stuff was still going on, even though it was absolutely not effective. And if you believed what the Old Covenant taught you, you would come to the Savior and you would be a New Covenant believer. So there's that transition with the old phasing out, but the new has begun. And that began in Acts chapter 2. And so we have this time then in the book of Acts, the history recorded of the first almost 40 years of this new era, the era in which we now live, the era of grace, the era of the church, and God is doing amazing things here. Well, even within the book of Acts, we have some punctuations of change and development, if you will, and as we come to chapter 8, it is one of those. Chapter 8 of Acts begins the 
second part of the inspired outline of this book, which comes from what Jesus said to the apostles and the rest of his, fo- of his followers who were gathered in Jerusalem just before he ascended to the Father. Jesus described this era of the kingdom of God, which is progressively being unfolded, but in this era, the king is not physically present. We look forward to him coming again. We pray, your kingdom come. We're waiting for the king to return. But look at what he said, just as a reminder, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They thought the kingdom was going to come and he was going to reign on the throne of David. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now we've been seeing astounding and glorious fruit in and around Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts Acts 2 through 7. And we've seen that despite Satan's relentless attacks through the unbelieving Jewish hierarchy known as the Sanhedrin, and even an attempt to uh, corrupt from within through Ananias and Sapphira, the gospel has reached well over 10,000 people. Yet not only the, the, the population of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, but for the, the Feast of, of um, Pentecost, many had come and many stayed for weeks or months because of this new thing that was going on. And that earliest manifestation of what we now label the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, what we now understand as the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, it had an overwhelming impact. It was just as Jesus had said it would be that that same night that he announced the new covenant. He said this in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That has been on display in Jerusalem. That amazing fellowship, that astounding caring for one another was part of what attracted people to hear the message of the gospel through the apostles and then through Stephen. And the miracles that God did through those same men validated that they were His messengers and this is His message and the love that the people showed demonstrated how changed lives lead to changed relationships and God works through all of those things. Now we also saw this earlier, chapter 6, verse 7. This is right after they had chosen those seven men, primarily Greek speakers, to deal with the, the widows of, uh, the Greek-speaking widows among them. And it says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now there's a, that's quite a statement. There was a great contrast between the priests at the top of the food chain, so to speak, the, the, the murderous, hypocritical, 
Sanhedrin, primarily Sadducees, who dominated the group dominated by high priests, and they were the hierarchy that controlled the activities of the temple. There was them, and there were, then there were the everyday priests, those average priests, the ones who did most of the work in the temple. They began to see the message of the gospel make its impact they began to see this astounding contrast between the Christians, people whose lives they had seen transformed by this Savior, versus what their own leading priests, their bosses, were doing to them, arresting them, flogging them, throwing them in jail. Well, the hatred of the Sanhedrin, probably, or the hatred by the Sanhedrin, probably reached its crescendo when Stephen, one of those first seven deacons, was used by God to preach and do miracles just like the apostles. The Sanhedrin had not been able to stop the apostles, no matter how hard they tried. And then now many of their underlings were turning to Jesus, and now someone other than the apostles takes center stage. It was too much for them to bear. And we saw the overflow of that in chapter 7. We saw how they railroaded Stephen to death by stoning. And they based it solely on the testimony of false witnesses about fabricated charges. And nothing resembling a fair hearing of the facts was ever involved. Chapter 7 is primarily Stephen's, what I call, best last words ever. Now, I pointed out to you something back in chapter 1, and I want to reconnect with it again now. I want to remind you that in those verses that we already read, if you notice, Jesus did not technically give them a command to take the gospel anywhere. He gave them a promise that they would take the gospel all over the world. Look again at verse 8 of chapter 1. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now it's true, you can use a future tense like that, you shall be my witnesses, and you can use it in the, in the sense of a gentle command, like some of the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, you, uh, you shall honor your father and your mother. You, you, you can make it into a command, but... In that passage, there's a contrast between things that are commanded and things that are stated as a fact. And um, Jesus said this is going to happen. As far as we can tell, there were no strategy meetings in the early Jerusalem church about how to evangelize the world. They simply proclaimed the gospel where they were and the impact of their ministry in their own city set in motion this cascading, uh, uh, wonderful spread of the gospel. And, and God used that to fulfill the first part of His promise. You will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem. He said that to a small group. Now there's over 10,000 of them. Now it isn't wrong to strategize about world missions. It's not wrong to plan and prepare and train for evangelism. And for us, it's, it's necessary 
if we're going to be as effective as possible in spreading the gospel in the modern world, and, and we take that responsible, responsibility very seriously, but most of us don't go jump over cultural barriers to take the gospel. That isn't God's plan for most of us. If we're not sent to a different culture, the best results that we have come from being faithful wherever we are. The body of Christ grows in concert with the testimony of local believers in a a local church. And God is trustworthy to lead people and place them wherever He means for them to bear the most fruit. Now in our passage for today, we're going to see the sovereign hand of God propel His people to the next phase of His plan. In chapter 8, the gospel jumps the first major barrier from one culture to another. From Jerusalem, we're going to see the gospel go to all Judea and Samaria. Now, get your terms here. Jerusalem is a city, right? Judea is the surrounding area. You want to make an analogy? Boise is a city. Ada County is uh, is, is a county larger than the city, and there's actually quite a bit of territory there. Well, the first jump was it's going outside the city limits of Jerusalem into all of Judea because people had to get out of the city, and you'll see why. And then to Samaria, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. You're going to see that God often uses unpleasant things, even things that we consider emergencies or tragedies, He uses them as catalysts to spreading the gospel. He he used a famine to get Jacob's family to Egypt where they could be preserved and protected. He, He used persecution to cause the spread of the gospel and the growth of the body of Christ. We've been sharing and, and praying for people in, in, in Ukraine and in areas around Ukraine where that horrible war is driving people away, just ruining their lives, and yet the gospel is spreading like crazy. Whole new churches have been formed from people that have become believers since they were driven out of their country. Now that doesn't mean, oh yeah, bomb them some more, that's good, but it means God's faithful to His his promises. So what bad things in your life, as you look back, has God used for your good or to create new opportunities for you to proclaim Christ? We're going to see one of those today. So let's get started. We'll call this the gospel goes to Samaria. I have a a marvelous outline. It's printed in your notes. Um, It is an accurate outline of the first 13 verses. It's accurate. It's just too ambitious for where we're going to get today. But it is, in the first three verses, providential persecution, then verses 4 through 8, powerful preaching, and then 9 through 13 is predictable products. We'll get there, but we're only going to get about halfway this morning. We start with providential persecution. Chapter 8, verse 1, some actually put the first line of this, the first sentence of this, as the end of of chapter 7. Some manuscripts do that. It's an arbitrary chapter division, but starts out, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him 
to death. The him is Stephen, who was murdered at the end of chapter 7. Then we read, And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. That's verse 2. Now there's a subtle point that I would like you to observe back in chapter 7, verse 58, just a little bit above this. When they had driven him, against Stephen, when they had driven him out of the city and they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, the main point is there, they murdered Stephen. That's the main thing going on. But the Holy Spirit made sure that Luke included the part about laying their robes at the feet of Saul. Now, this was not just a case of Here, kid, watch our robes so we can hurl the stones more fiercely. We'll show you how this is done. Now, that was why they took off their robes, is so they could stone and murder more efficiently. But that's not all of this. There's an implication. The implication is that Saul was behind the murder of Stephen. He was very much a part of this plan. Think back Chapter 2, chapter 4, we've seen when among the early Christians that when there was a need, people would even sell property or liquidate other assets and they would give generously to take care of the needs of their brothers and sisters. And it always said they would bring their offerings and lay them at the feet of the apostles. Now, they didn't have a nice wooden offering box like we have in the back. They didn't even have a church building to do this. Did they literally come and lay their stuff on the ground? in front of the apostles? I, I don't know. But I do know that's a metaphor for symbolically saying, we're putting this under your authority. Uh, the, the apostles, you are the ones in charge, they're saying, as they bring the gifts. So they were the ones who would assure that the offerings were used as intended, and that's why they were laid at their feet. So in this case, the implication would be Saul was part of the murder of Stephen, and that's reinforced by saying Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul is a bad guy, and he's going to cause a lot of pain to a lot of people. Now, the connection from Stephen to Saul to the new man that Saul will become, Paul, is profound. There's going to be some times, well, we're going to meet in chapter 9, we're going to see Paul's or Saul's conversion when he became uh, Paul. Then there's two other places in, in Acts where Paul recounts his testimony. And one of those in Acts 22.20, 20, we see Paul acknowledge that this connection with the death of Stephen made a big impact on him. This was when his persecution career was launched. But from the brutal and death-dealing Saul, God formed the wonderful apostle Paul. He used Paul to be his instrument to penetrate the whole Roman world with the gospel. And that forever changed the course of history. And it began with this murder of Stephen. Stephen is a marvelous example. You know, 
God used Stephen in unique ways as a representative of Christ. But there's a lot of comparisons to Jesus. As Jesus was filled with the Spirit, so was Stephen. The words full of grace apply to both Jesus and Stephen. Jesus confronted the religious establishment of his day, he mainly taking on the Pharisees, the most legalistic ones. So did Stephen confront the religious establishment. He confronted the mainly aristocratic, pompous Sadducees. The Jews used lying witnesses against both Jesus and Stephen. They were both subjected to a kangaroo court where truth was never in play. Both were executed, though not guilty of the crimes they were accused of. Both were accused of blasphemy. Both were taken outside the city limits of Jerusalem to their death. Both were buried by sympathetic friends. And both of them prayed for their executioners to be saved. I don't think there's any example in the Bible more like Jesus than Stephen. It was a dark day when... Jesus died, in his case, literally three hours of darkness in the afternoon. But the triumph came when he was raised from the dead. And we're studying the glorious beginnings of the church uh, the, on the preaching of the Savior who was crucified and buried and rose again. We're, we're seeing that here in the book of Acts. And as wonderful as it was to have seen thousands turn to Christ in Jerusalem, it was another dark day when Stephen was murdered. And then as we saw, some devout men buried Stephen. And here's another little tidbit the Holy Spirit made sure was here. And made loud lamentation over him. Why that little comment, made loud lamentation over him? Well, it means they love Stephen. It means they, they thought this was wrong. But we know that according to Jewish law, as eventually it was codified in a massive collection of writings known as the Mishnah, uh, this is not from the Old Testament, but we know that Jewish law prohibited any public mourning whenever a criminal was executed. So, the Sanhedrin had declared Stephen to be a criminal worthy of death. So when there was loud lamentation over his death, that was a public protest against the Sanhedrin. They were saying basically, nah, we're not buying this. Now it was surely not only a sad day when Stephen was killed... It was also the beginning of fearful times for Christians. And I said it was a dark day when Jesus was killed, but three days later he rose from the grave. And we've seen the, the long-term effect of that. Well, here uh, we're going to take a little while to see the glorious things that happened after Stephen's death. It was the beginning of some fearful times for those Christians in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Now again, in the retelling of his story in chapters 22 and uh, 26, Paul is going to explain that his actions in ravaging the church were fully 
sanctioned by and done fully under the authority of and with the blessing of the Sanhedrin. He's going to explain in one of those places that he was furiously enraged with the Christians. And he says that he always voted for their deaths whenever the opportunities came. This is one angry, murderous man. The word translated ravaging is one of those really interesting words. There are some you know, Bible words that are really fascinating and tell a great story, but this is one of those that's interesting because it's used only once in the New Testament. This is the only place it occurs. So if you want to do a word study on this book, it'll be over really, on this word, it'll be over really quick. One occurrence. It's translated ravaging. But obviously the word was known to Luke who wrote this book and Luke knew that his readers, Romans, understood this. So we look to see how was this word used outside of the Bible and we find it was used for the destruction of a city, ravaging a city, leaving it in ruins. It was also used for mangling by a wild beast. It was Saul's desire. It was his tireless quest to rip the church apart. So far, the persecution had always been aimed at the leadership, the apostles. And then Stephen, who was the close associate of the apostles, now Saul is going from house to house to root out Christians. Think Nazi Germany or Soviet Union, or North Korea, or what's going on now with the hands of some of the Fulani Muslims in, in Africa. House to house, ripping people away. Men and women equally mistreated and imprisoned. Saul's purpose was Satan's purpose. The total destruction of the church and the extermination of every follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I've read the rest of the book. God wins, but oh, the enemies are serious. The persecution here is going to be used by God to result in scattering the church throughout the regions of, brace yourselves, Judea and Samaria, just as God promised. It would be hard to imagine how terrible you would have felt if you loved Jesus, if you were one of his followers and you witnessed him going to the cross. It would be hard to imagine how terrible you would have felt if you were part of that thriving, bustling church in Jerusalem in those first months after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and then you witnessed the arrest and the murder of Deacon Stephen. That would have been rough. But take a step back and see this in light of the plan of God. It was his intention to spread the gospel to the rest of Judea, then to Samaria, and, and more beyond that. You see, the, the gospel is similar to a virus in one respect. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of a virus, little things that go around. You have to be exposed to someone who has the virus in order to be infected by it. Well, this was the unfolding plan of God. In His providence, He used the evil, murderous enemies of Christ as unwitting tools 
to get his people to places where others could be infected with the gospel. You can't help but think of what Joseph said to his brothers. Remember they were going to kill him and then they bargained down to, well, let's just sell him and they sold him into slavery. Then they lied to their father about it and eventually they wind up coming to Joseph to ask for food in Egypt, not realizing that's Joseph. We've just been through that in our daily emails in, uh, in Genesis. But these famous words that Joseph said to his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. He didn't just say, Oh, that's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. No, he said, You were evil. You did wrong against me. There was no mincing of that, no softening of that. But the sentence goes on. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now it's really interesting that the same man who was doing that ravaging of the church he would eventually be the one whom God used to write some of your favorite words in the Bible. It's the New Testament version of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God accomplishes His good purpose for all of His people. How sad for those people who had to flee for their lives. I can't imagine how they must have missed basking in the apostles' doctrine day in and day out. and How they missed the sweet fellowship that they had enjoyed. But this was God's plan. He used even the most evil schemes to arrange for His plans to be unveiled and for the gospel to spread. It's like those horrors being inflicted on Ukraine. They really are horrible. But God is building the church in new places even through that. If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, keep the right perspective. If you lose your job, God's hand is upon that whole situation. If you lose your health, God is at work through it. And it's for your good. If your loved one is suffering, God intends to use that situation for His glory and for your greater maturity in Christ. If you are discouraged... If you are weary, if you are frustrated, you're biblical. Romans chapter 8, we groan living in this fallen world. But never forget that God has a glorious eternal purpose for whatever you are going through. More words written by the Apostle Paul 
apply here. Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen. In the context, he's recounting some of the things that he has suffered for Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And he says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. I used to read that phrase by faith. Now I know it's true from experience. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. You say, well, wait a second, that's not about me. I know how fast momentary is. This has been lasting for weeks. It's been going on for months. We've been taking care of, of, of great-grandma for, for a year and a half now. What do you mean, light affliction? I can't even walk. What do you mean, momentary light affliction? Well, momentary in relationship to eternity, light in relationship to the eternal weight of glory. For verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So now look at the outwardly tragic situation of Stephen's murder through the eyes of faith. God was at work, and Stephen's death led immediately to providential persecution, and that led to powerful preaching. Just what happens when people who are totally devoted to Jesus Christ get relocated, whether it's by their choice or it's enforced on them by persecution or economic necessity or whatever? Well, what happens is they take the gospel with them. Look there at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They weren't cowering in fear. Oh, trust me, it hurt. It was discouraging. It was frustrating. It was painful. It was, it was unnerving. But they didn't cower in fear. They didn't, they didn't go out and set up cloisters where they could hide out and be isolated from the big bad world. They weren't organizing protests. They weren't demanding rights. They went about living their lives and talking about their risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now from the middle of chapter 6 through the end of chapter 7, we followed that wonderful but very brief ministry of Deacon Stephen, one of those first seven. Now we pick up the story through another one of those seven who was chosen back in chapter 6. We meet him in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The central role now shifts to Philip. Now, this is not Philip the Apostle. There are two different Philips. There are more than two. This is Philip the Deacon. We know that by two pieces of evidence. Number one, they were all scattered except the Apostles. 
Now, we don't, that doesn't mean every single person was scattered and the church in Jerusalem went from 15,000 down to 12. Uh, what it means is that the apostles stayed there and anchored there. They continued to preach and to teach. The church in Jerusalem never died. It was a, it was a powerful influence. We're going to see a lot more about it in the book of Acts. But the apostles stayed there. And we're also told up in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, that Philip was called one of the seven well, if you know the twelve, and somebody's one of the twelve, we're talking about the apostles. The seven is the group of the first deacons. And by the way, another little tidbit, uh, Philip is the first one in the, in the New Testament to be uh, given the title evangelist. He was the one doing evangelism, preaching the gospel. Now, I want to pick this apart um, a little bit. And this was the point... Uh, at which I realize we're not going to finish the outline that I targeted for today, so we'll carry it over to next time. Don't, uh, don't worry, uh, you'll be home before dinner. Now, pick it apart a little bit. Notice it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. I always tell you when you see geographical references in your Bible, it's helpful to go look at, a, at maps in the back of your Bible and see where things are. And you're going to say, well, that's wrong. It says Philip went down to Samaria, but Samaria is the city of Samaria is 40 miles north of Jerusalem. You would say he went up. I mean, if, if you live in Boise, Idaho, you're not saying I'm going up up to San Diego, or I'm going down to Canada. You know, north is up. Well, unless your map is a topographical map, you will have that confusion. But um, in the Bible, it always says people go up to Jerusalem, and it always says people go down from Jerusalem, no matter which direction they're coming and growing to or from, because Jerusalem is at the highest point for many miles in all directions. So you always go up to Jerusalem. Now, you need to understand some things about Samaria if you're going to get all that God intends for you uh, from you know, this chapter. So I'll give you a little Samaria of Samaria um, and you'll understand it. The, the city of Samaria, as I said, was about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. It had been the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel after the kingdom was divided following the time of Solomon. The city of Samaria was founded by a man named Omri, O-M-R-I. You can read about that in 1 Kings 16.24. The, the northern kingdom had a series of kings and none of them were ever um, anything good spiritually. After well over a century of idolatry and um, disobeying God in the northern kingdom, uh, the city of Samaria and that whole region of the northern kingdom were overrun and, uh, and taken over by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Two important dates to remember, 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, is invaded by the Assyrians. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, is taken over by the Babylonians after Babylon conquered Assyria in that time in between. So 722 B.C. was the end of the northern kingdom. That southern kingdom, also called Judah, lasted until 586, and then they were carried off to Babylon. Now, the Assyrians 
we're particularly despicable as a culture. Uh, they loved forcing people to move. It's unnerving to uproot people. They liked doing that. They were also loved killing people, but that's another thing. They moved many from what had been the northern kingdom of Israel to other lands they had conquered, and they moved people from other nations they had conquered into the region that had been the northern kingdom that came to be called Samaria. Many of the Jews who remained there intermarried with those who were imported by the Assyrians, and the resulting mix of intermarriages between Jews and Gentiles became known as the Samaritans. The Jews, now their kingdom had been deported to Babylon. They spent 70 years there. They came back. They, for the most part, um, didn't intermarry. They remained more pure, but the Jews then regarded the Samaritans as unclean half-breed sellouts. It was pure racism based upon genetics. Not only had they disobeyed by intermarrying with the foreigners, they also messed up the religious part of it into a syncretistic mess. Second Kings 17.33 says, They feared the Lord, Yahweh, and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from uh, among whom they had been carried away into exile. So they had smorgasbord religion. Oh, Yahweh? Yeah, yeah we, we really like him. He's, he's the main God. But hey, you like something different? Go for it. We'll just, we'll just mix it all. You, know, you can worship anything you want, any way you want. Now, there was a tremendous amount of antipathy between the Samaritans and the Israelites. Um, when the Israelites, when the southern kingdom folks, were allowed to return to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, the problems between the Samaritans and the Jews boiled to the surface. When some Samaritans offered to help rebuild the temple, when Ezra brought his group back, they were summarily rejected. Even though they claimed it to be worshipers of the true God, Israel would have nothing to do with them. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. That hostility between the Jews and Samaritans became entrenched and it grew worse and worse between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So we have this summary statement from the Apostle John in John chapter 4, verse 9. This is when Jesus visited Samaria. John just put this in there for his um, readers who weren't familiar with the history. John 4, 9, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It was so bad that for most Jews, if they were going to travel between, uh, say, Jerusalem and Nazareth, they wouldn't just take the, the straight line. They would add about 30% to their trip. They would not go straight north. They would go to the east and they would cross the Jordan River, go up the other side of the Jordan River, cross the Jordan River again, just so they never stepped on Samaritan dirt. That's how much they hated Samaritans. That's why it was monumental that Jesus chose to make the first announcement that he was the Messiah to a Samaritan in Samaria. 
And worse yet, in the eyes of his culture, he did it for a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans, even though they had corrupted everything pretty badly, they were still looking forward to the Messiah. And so Jesus used that opportunity to show that, yes, he came to the house of Israel, but he made a commitment to the whole world and to sinners in general. So, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Why? Well, we can make a couple of decent guesses. We're not told exactly for sure. Probably Philip had been part of that original 120 when the Holy Spirit came. If not, he was around very soon after that. And it's likely that he heard and maybe he actually paid attention when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Samaria. Well, if that's the case, good on Philip. I'm glad he went there. There's another possible factor. We know that Philip and those other six deacons were chosen primarily to minister to the Hellenistic Jews. Remember that word? Hellenistic means Greek-speaking, not native Aramaic speakers. And so... Um, Philip probably wasn't from Jerusalem originally, and it might be then that by his own experience, maybe he had a soft spot for people who felt like outsiders. See, that was the issue when they chose, you know, the, the Hellenistic widows aren't getting their fair share when the, in, the, in the daily care of the widows, and so they appointed some Greek speakers to, to, to address that issue. Now, this is a com completely awkward place to leave off, but we're going to stop here. We're going to come back next time. But what gems might we gather from this? I decided to say, let's, let's get some gems. So I, so I picked up a list of precious gems just to be cute and cuddly. There's no symbolic reference to any of these things. And I'm not saying one's more valuable to another because another because I don't know which one's most valuable anyway, except probably diamond. Okay, never mind. In our passage, there is the sapphire gem of God's sovereignty. He is in perfect control of this whole situation. He's in perfect control of your life just as he was the early days of the church, and just as he was in perfect control then. He is in perfect control of the affairs of the nations today. God is sovereign. If you don't believe God is sovereign, you don't know God. And if you don't believe He's sovereign, why in the world would you worship Him? Because He can't fix things unless He's in control. He's sovereign. What a glorious truth. Then there's the emerald gem of God's goodness. God is always perfectly good all the time in every situation. He knows the end from the beginning, so you can rest fully assured He will cause all things to work together for your good, even what hurts. He's good even in the midst of this messed up world. Then there's the diamond gem of God's providence. His, his sovereignty 
plus his goodness, plus his power, equals the fact that in the midst of all the machinations of the fallen world, all the souls of the world, all the Assyrians of the world, all the Babylonians of the world, all the evil people of the world, he is in control. His will is being played out for his glory. And as we see that unfolded, we call that his providence. He provides his plan in the midst of all of this stuff. Then there's the ruby gem of the the power of the gospel. Wherever God's people go, for whatever earthly reasons they go, by whatever earthly means they, they get there, the gospel continues to spread as His people are His faithful witnesses. The most literal translation of the Great Commission would be something like, having gone among all the nations, make disciples. The command is make disciples. The going part is an aorist participle. Oh, don't you love aorist participles? Doesn't that just, doesn't that just make your soul melt? No, it doesn't. But what it means is, the command is, wherever you go, you're the disciple maker. Take the gospel with you wherever you go. Now, if God puts it on your heart to have a desire to jump over a cultural boundary and take the gospel, well, to Him be the glory. Go for it. We'll do our best to support you and help you with that. But the gem is the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And there's one more, the pearl gem of the example of Philip. Stephen, well, he was a gem on his own, but Philip, he took the gospel to people probably who felt left out. They knew the Jews hated them. So here comes a Jew from Jerusalem coming down and giving them the most life-changing message ever. My friend, wherever God places you, that's where He intends to use you. So, ask Him for wisdom. How might I glorify you in the midst of this? Father, how in this situation do you want me to become more like your Son, more holy for your glory? And let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for uh, this portion of your word. Thank you for the gospel going to Samaria. That is the next step, as you said in your plan. And here we sit centuries later and thousands of miles away in the next phase of your plan. Oh, how we thank you for the faithfulness of those who took the the wonderful gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of the, the only Savior, the only mediator between God and man, your Son, Jesus Christ. And that message has been passed down one person at a time, generation through generations, through all of the centuries, to us. It is too glorious for us to adequately put into words, but we say thank you. And we pray that you will give us the wisdom to see with the, eye, <clears throat> with the eyes of faith 
your hand upon our lives and then use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.